Well, good morning, everybody. I'm totally going to age myself, but uh, 1967, anybody remember that? Yeah, just a couple of us. <laughs> it was over, over 20 inches of snow. Well, welcome. I am actually holding you all in very high regard that you showed up today. Way to go, hearty people. Australians would say good on you for coming to church today. Very cool. Two Sundays ago, at approximately 6.30 p.m., a dark cloud descended over our city. Just in case you weren't aware, the Bears kicker missed a field goal <laughs> at that moment. Um, the ball hit the upright and then somehow hit the crossbar and bounced in the wrong direction, now known as the double doink. It was inches away from being like a raucous celebration around here. And instead, we sat there in stunned silence. I'm still trying to get over it. I'm using this as a group therapy time to talk about that. <laughs> but I thought that the response to this was fascinating to watch. Of course, immediately, most people blamed the kicker. Then other people said, well, maybe the ball wasn't placed quite right. Others said maybe a wind caught it and it went left. Then the very next day, the NFL ruled that an opposing player had deflected it, making it officially a blocked kick. I heard a lot of whining and a lot of blaming, and I poured through the sports pages trying to understand how in the world we're not headed to the Super Bowl. Now, whenever you and I face any kind of resistance in life, any kind of hardship, and truly losing a football game may not count as true hardship, but any time we come up against that, there are two different lenses by which we look at hardship. You are in one of two categories of people. Don't you hate it when people tell you you're in some category? But I'm here to tell you we are each in one of two categories of people. And it's not like half of us are in one category and half the other. Actually, experts think that about 98% of us are in one category and 2% in the other. Now, just to show you how few people that is, I'm not going to ask you to do anything crazy, but would the front row just stand, just in the center here, the front row, there's about 10 of you. You don't have to stand with this adorable baby. That's OK. OK, this is about 2% of those of us who are here today, a very small number. Thank you. You can sit down. Now, I have a tremendously difficult task this morning. I'm going to challenge all of us to join the 2%, to go against what is natural. It's as normal to us as breathing to be in the 98%. So let me describe these two perspectives. This wisdom comes from a book by Jim Dethra and others titled The 15 Commitments of Conscious Leadership. And in that book, uh, he talks about these two perspectives. We're going to build on what we learned last week from Pastor Jarrett. If you didn't hear that message, I urge you to listen online. But Jarrett taught us that this is a very much an inner battle and that resistance can actually be a gift as counterintuitive as that sounds. So the first kind of person looks at life as being to me, to me. And this is the one that feels so normal to us. A little later, we're going to talk about the other perspective, which is through me. But right now, I want to focus on to me. This is looking at life as though everything has an outside force, a cause that's coming at me. And these external forces are what is happening in my life that I'm paying attention to and I keep blaming them. So these forces could be the economy, the government, the weather, my spouse, my children, my friends, my health, my bank account, my job, 
this could be my favorite kicker on the football team. All those forces are responsible in this to-me way of thinking for my happiness, for my success. I believe that someone or something is at fault when something doesn't go well. And in this way of thinking, I see myself completely as a victim. This is a victim kind of consciousness. Now, uh, I want to be clear that there's a difference between a victim and this victim consciousness. If you drive out of here today and a drunk driver hits you, you are a victim. Children who grow up with alcoholic or abusive parents are victims. Adults can be victims of spouse abuse or of a crime or of theft or of deceit. But the question is, as time goes on, are you perpetually and stubbornly staying in the place of a victim? That is having a victim consciousness. Are you staying in that place? And this perspective usually shows up in one of two ways. We have two very distinct paths, and we like them both very much. One of them is complaint, and the other is blaming. We do them both very, very well. Complaint and blaming are the two ways that we live in a victim mentality. Now, we learn this from the time we're very, very young. You know, a child, some of their favorite phrases is, it's not my fault, right? Or he did it, or she did it. Take a look at this video of two brothers who were completely caught in the act. Whose idea was this? Did you think this was a good idea? Look at brother's face. <laughs> Who got the paint out? Brother did? How did he, no? How'd he get it? How come you didn't tell him no? Who's the big brother? You are. Now, sadly, Many of us take this whining as children and this complaining right into adulthood. And I want to give you a profound example from the world of sports. Forgive me if you are a LeBron fan, but my husband made me do this. This is the biggest whiner in sports. We have several, several examples. There's my favorite right there. Now, both complaining and blaming are vividly captured and illustrated by the children of Israel as found in the Bible. So we're going to go to that truth source right now. If you could grab the Bible, it's either in front of you or under your seat. And we're going to go to the book of Numbers. This is found on page 115, 115, the fourth book in the Bible in the Old Testament. <clears throat> as you're hunting, let me give you just a little background. We're going to go back to Moses who we explored last week. Now, you're most likely familiar with the famous, incredible moment, right? You've seen it in movies, where God parted the Red Sea. The Israelites were being pursued by their Egyptian, Egyptian captors, and he saved them, he rescued them. And then they ended up in a desert on their way to the land that he had promised them. So we're picking up the story weeks after that miracle. The people in the desert were hungry. And they began to complain, and they were begging for food, so God provided for them a daily food called manna. It showed up every morning on the grass. Now, the word manna is literally translated, what is it? Because they didn't know what this food was. 
They didn't even know how to describe it. And at first it wasn't so bad because it did fill their stomachs, but manna, manna, and more manna became very, very boring. The same old, same old, same old thing every single meal. So we're going to start at Numbers chapter 11, verse 4. It starts by saying the rabble. That's another name for mob. Okay, these were the, the real malcontents. The rabble with them began to crave other food. And again, the Israelites started wailing and said, If only we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt at no cost. Also the cucumbers, melons, leeks, onions, and garlic. But now we have lost our appetite. We never see anything but this manna. The manna was like coriander seed and looked like resin. And the people went around gathering it and then ground it in a hand mill or crushed it in a mortar. They cooked it in a pot or made it into cakes. And it tasted like something made with olive oil. When the dew settled on the camp at night, the manna also came down. Get this. Moses heard the people of every family wailing, each at the entrance to his tent. The Lord became exceedingly angry, and Moses was troubled. He asked the Lord, Why have you brought this trouble on your servant? What have I done to displease you that you put the burden of all these people on me? Did I conceive all these people? Did I give them birth? He's really laying it on here. Why do you tell me to carry them in my arms as a nurse carries an infant to the land you promised on oath to their forefathers? Where can I get meat for all these people? They keep wailing to me, give us meat to eat. I cannot carry all these people by myself. The burden is too heavy for me. If this is how you're going to treat me, put me to death right now. If I have found favor in your eyes and do not let me face my own ruin. Boy, he is a whiner. Now, did you catch that the people actually longed for Egypt, where they were slaves? They are throwing an enormous pity party. They're complaining to Moses, and then Moses complains to God. Now, it's very important to note that they're not merely whining about food. Their complaint is against God, their rescuer. So how does he react? Well, we're going to skip ahead to verse 18. This is how the Lord responds to Moses. Now, you cannot read this without a tone of voice, okay? So I have to, I, I just interpreting what I'm reading here. Tell the people, consecrate yourselves in preparation for tomorrow when you will eat meat. The Lord heard you when you wailed, if only we had meat to eat. We were better off in Egypt. Now the Lord will give you meat and you will eat it. You will eat it not just one day or two days or five days or 10 or 20 days, but for a whole month until it comes out of your nostrils and you loathe it. <laughs> Because you have rejected the Lord who is among you and have wailed before him, saying, why did we ever leave Egypt? God is clearly angry with his children. You want meat? I'll give you so much meat you're going to throw up. Why is God so angry? Well, Pastor Jeff Mannion writes that this is because our complaint is rooted in the suspicion that God is not good. That's where complaint is rooted, that God must not be good, so I'm going to complain. Now, it's very easy for you and me to get really judgy, right, about the Israelites in the desert. I want to accuse them of not being grateful for being freed from slavery. What about that Red Sea thing? Did you forget all about that? And God is feeding you every day. But then I think about the truth that they had to eat that manna for 40 years. 40 years. Several years ago at our former church, uh, my husband and a great team of people led an experience each spring called the Celebration of Hope. And it was a time of raising awareness about poverty and needs globally around the world. 
So part of the experience included a challenge for everybody in the church to spend one week eating the same kind of simple food at every meal. Most of us chose like beans and rice. So we had beans and rice, a small little bowl, for breakfast, lunch, and dinner for one week. Now, this is to identify with the people, billions of people around the world, who if they do have something to eat, it's the same thing every day, who can't even imagine a grocery store with all the varieties to soothe you know, every palate out there. So our family did the beans and rice challenge. By day two, the whining and complaining uh, would begin. By days three and four, we were fantasizing about fresh blueberries and a juicy burger and mocha chip ice cream. My girls were in like middle school and high school at the time, and they've confessed to me years later that they cheated at the school cafeteria in the <laughs> middle of the day, which I did not know about. But we were major whiners, and we only did this for one week. And we joined many other people from that church at midnight on the day that this thing ended, ordering out pizza. The next day, we all went to Portillo's and got chocolate cake and fries because we were so deprived, right? But yet the children of Israel had to choke down manna for 40 years. Jeff Mannion says this about complaint. The heart drifts toward complaint as if by gravitational pull. After all, complaint seems a reasonable response to a sequence of disappointing events. Generally, you don't have to extend an invitation for complaint to show up. It arrives as an uninvited guest. We don't have to invite it, right? It's our natural response. Now, there's a thread of warnings all throughout the Bible about you and I not being like the children of Israel. In the Psalms, there's many verses saying, do not murmur like they did. In 1 Corinthians, in his letter to them, the Apostle Paul warned us all against following the example of those who grumbled in the desert. But not only were the children of Israel complainers, they were also blamers. They blamed Moses for bringing them out of Egypt to the desert. They blamed God for the whole mess. And then Moses blamed God too. The blame game is the second way that you and I display a victim consciousness. And we are so good at this. Brene Brown says our blame is rooted in our fear. It's closely connected to our shame. When we feel shame, we can't face our own responsibility and we see blame as a quick fix. Maybe it'll offload my anger or my discomfort. Here's what she says. It doesn't have to be something big. Blame works to discharge mild discomfort too. You're late for work and you can't find the shirt you want to wear. So you yell at your partner for hanging the dry cleaning in the wrong place in the closet. It doesn't have to make sense either. It just has to give us some sense of relief and control. In fact, for most of us who rely on blaming and finding fault, the need for control is so strong that we'd rather have something be our fault than succumb to the bumper sticker wisdom of stuff happens. If stuff just happens, how do I control that? We always think we'll feel better if we can point the finger at someone or something else. You know, my husband trades stocks and commodities and other investments, and when he has a down day in the market, I'm always trying to find a reason. I'm like, did China do something? Or did the government make a decision? Did Congress pass some law? I rarely want to face the tiny, teeny, tiny possibility that maybe he just made a bad trading decision. But I want to find something or someone to blame. 
I often tell the story of my most embarrassing moment in college. I went to a school that had a public television station uh, right on campus. It was a real television station, and we got to work there. I was studying broadcasting at the time, and way back then, they would have called me the weather girl, because I did the weather. And one day, I am not exaggerating, uh, I did a forecast for the next day that including wind chill was off by over 50 degrees. So the next day I had to go back and I go, hi. <laughs> now, whenever I tell this story, I notice that I always mention that we got our weather information from a professional meteorologist. I always want to avoid taking any blame or responsibility for that. You see, the trouble with blame is we think it's going to make everything better. But it kills relationships. It kills a culture in a workplace or in the home. Some people carry around blame against their parents for their entire lives. Or when you're at work, watch what happens when something doesn't go well, right? When you don't get the client, or the reviews aren't positive, or the new marketing plan isn't working. Usually the blame game starts in full force, with each person trying to shift the focus off themselves and point to someone else out of fear and protection. This is our go-to response. So you ask. If victim consciousness isn't the best way to look at life and hardship and resistance, what is the alternative? What do 2% of the people do that is radically different from complaining and blaming? I'm so glad you asked. The opposite of looking at life as to me is looking at life as through me. Through me. This is a completely different approach. This is the person that says, I am going to look at life as one big learning university. One big learning university. And instead of asking, why did this happen, or who can I blame, I'm going to ask, what can I learn? I'm going to be curious. What can I learn? And we choose learning and curiosity over defensiveness and this need we always have to be right. Instead, we say, life is a learning university. Now, the gateway, the gateway to living this way is radical responsibility. Radical responsibility, something that we should be taught as children, but many of us were not, to learn to say, what am I responsible for and what am I going to do about it? Radical responsibility. And I truly believe that this requires us to surrender control again, and again and again. It's not a one-time thing. You're not going to walk out of here today and say, forever now, I am going to be a 2% person. I'm going to look at life as through me. No, you're going to have to make this choice every single day. Stop looking for causes outside of ourselves and placing blame, and instead, focus inwardly. We make a conscious choice to do this. Maya Angelou once said, you may not control all the events that happen to you, but you can decide not to be reduced by them. You can't control the events that happen to you, but you can decide. You can choose. You and I can choose. No matter how difficult our circumstances, we have a choice how to respond. And I really believe that our perspective is rooted in our view of God. Remember we said that complaint is rooted in a suspicion that God is not good. What if that's not true? What if God is fundamentally good and for us, 
truly for us. That would transform our thinking. So we're going to move from the children of Israel back in the Old Testament and go all the way to the New Testament and see a different way of thinking that would have totally revitalized the children of Israel if they had adopted this way of thinking. This is found in Paul's letter to the Romans, one of the most famous passages in Scripture. And if you want to look it up, it's on page 917 in your Bible. This letter was written against the backdrop of Paul knowing major hardship in his life. He knew persecution, violence, loneliness, much criticism. He had experienced time in prison for his faith. And in light of all that, you've got to see that as the backdrop. Look at his words, one of the most famous verses in the Bible. We're going to start with Romans 8, 28. And we know that in what? Say that again all things not some things not a few things not even just the really good things in all things god works for the good of those who love him who have been called according to his purpose skip down to verse 31 what then shall we say in response to this if god is for us who can be against us he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things Verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Verse 37, no. In all these things we are what? More. More than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. That phrase, more than conquerors, can be translated super conquerors. We are super conquerors. You know, my friends, when we regularly remind ourselves that God is for us, we choose the path of trust, the path of trust. We get to choose whether to lean into complaint or blame or choose the path of trust. Jeff Mannion says that trust and complaint are incompatible roommates. One of them inevitably pushes the other out. So if you're complaining, you're not trusting, and if you're trusting, you're not complaining. We get to choose one or the other. And since the beginning of time, God blessed human beings. He created human beings to have the dignity of choice. Adam and Eve had the choice, and they chose complaint and blame. Adam blamed Eve, and Eve blamed the snake. What will we choose when hardship comes our way? You see, our reaction to any kind of resistance is forming us. It's the kind of person that we are becoming. Our reaction to resistance is forming us. We can either be a victim or a victor. Our choice. A victim or a victor. Now I want to be clear that looking at life with the through-me lens does not mean that we are passive, just blindly accepting injustice. Perhaps few human beings revealed that more powerfully than the man that we're going to honor tomorrow with a national holiday, Dr. Martin Luther King. He did not speak as a man with a victim consciousness. Rather, he's shown a bright light on injustice with extraordinary thought and wisdom and courage. I took some time this week to read the entire letter he wrote from the Birmingham jail. It's a 16-page 
letter. And he had been thrown in jail on Good Friday after a protest there, along with other marchers. He was treated with unusually harsh conditions in that jail. And an ally smuggled him a newspaper of that day, which contained a call for unity from eight white clergymen in Alabama. They were against the methods that Dr. King and his team were using. This letter provoked Dr. King to respond. At first, he began writing just on the margins of the newspaper, but as I told you, it turned out to be a 16-page deal. So he found scraps of paper, and eventually his lawyer brought him a pad of paper so he could write this letter. You know, while I might have spent my time in jail complaining with a toomey attitude about the crummy food and how could God allow me to be there during Holy Week, while I might have been there, he was over here. He was saying, God, what do you want to do through me at this moment in history? And he wrote this speech, and, or this letter, and I would urge you to read it tomorrow. You can find it online. But I'm going to show you just one excerpt. Take a look at this, honoring Dr. King. My dear fellow clergymen, while confined here in the Birmingham City Jail, I came across your recent statement calling my present activities unwise and untimely. I'm in Birmingham because injustice is here. And justice too long delayed is justice denied. In the midst of a mighty struggle to rid our nation of racial and economic injustice, I've heard many ministers say those are social issues with which the gospel has no concern. There was a time when the church was very powerful and the time when the early Christians rejoiced at being deemed worthy to suffer for what they believe. In those days, the church was not merely a thermometer that recorded the ideas and principles of popular opinion. It was a thermostat to transform the mores of society. Whenever the early Christians entered a town, the people in power became disturbed and immediately sought to convict the Christians for being disturbers of the peace and outside agitators. If today's church does not recapture the sacrificial spirit of the early church, it will lose its pathetic ring and forfeit the loyalty of millions and be dismissed as an irrelevant social club with no meaning for the 20th century. for the cause of peace and brotherhood, Martin Luther King, Jr. Called the church at that time an irrelevant social club. Dr. King called out for justice. He wasn't a victim. He wasn't even laying blame so much as he was saying, this is what is true, and this is what is right. He was a phenomenal example of the 2%, taking radical responsibility. What kind of hardship or resistance are you facing today? Some of you are listening to this so far, and you say you, a percentage of you are going through something extremely difficult right now. I don't know if it's in your relational world, it could be at work, it could be your finances, it could be your health. Some of you are really under it. And you came to church today with a lump in your throat, and now you hear somebody tell you, don't blame and don't complain, and 
you know, just choose to trust. And that's not easy. It's not easy. But I want to invite you to say, God, what could you possibly be trying to teach me? What can I learn in this time? Our homework this week is to pay attention. When we get into certain moments, to watch ourselves naturally go to one of these places, naturally have a victim consciousness, and to arrest it in that moment, and to say, God, with your help, I want to shift. I want to shift my focus. I want to ask what I can learn. I want to take radical responsibility and choose to trust you even though I'm in the dark, even though I don't understand what is happening. In fact, uh, our team created a, a background that you can use. And if you go to our social media platforms, you can download it. And it reminds us that we are not victims. We can choose to be a victor, regardless of what other circumstances we're in. It is our choice. Like many of you, uh, I've been inspired through the years by stories of men and women who are victors in spite of great hardship. I've met people around the world who don't have enough to eat. And I have uh, met people who have more joy and gratitude than I can possibly believe given the challenges that they are facing. But the truth is, I don't have to look very far or even to famous people because one of the 2% is a very close friend of our family. I've told you about my friend Joe before, but for those of you who haven't heard, let me just give you a little background on Joe. Uh, Joe grew up in Palatine at a place called Little City. He had been in foster homes through most of his childhood, and eventually the state of Illinois decided to put him in Little City. His mother had given him up as a baby, and there was no trace of his father. Warren and I met Joe one day when he decided to ride his bicycle to the church that we were attending at the time. We met him during the turn and greet time. I want to warn you, you never know who you're going to meet during the turn and greet time and what might happen, because that was like 40 years ago. In fact, Joe said, where do you live? And I don't know, Warren, unwisely in some ways, told him, gave him an address. And three days later, he showed up on his bicycle. And we've been friends uh, ever since. We watched Joe complete his GED education, um, move out of Little City to an apartment here in Chicago. He began a series of jobs, ultimately supporting himself and working as a laborer in construction. When Joe was in his 20s, he looked in the phone book. This doesn't usually work, but somehow he found his mother. He went to meet with her, um, but sadly she had no interest in connecting with him, and so Joe chose to accept that. As a follower of Jesus, Joe serves and continues to serve. I think his heart is huge in a variety of ways. He volunteers in a food pantry regularly. He has sponsored, starting in 1981, children through Compassion International, often as many as three or four at a time. There was one time on his limited income, he was sponsoring six children through Compassion monthly. And even now that he's retired and he's on a very fixed income. He's still sponsoring three kids. He has such a generous spirit. These days he'll be out shoveling snow. When he showed up this morning, he grabbed a shovel before he came in and said, oh, the church needs a little shoveling, and did that. Whenever he sees someone in need, he will help them. When he was a young kid, Joe did go through some periods of anger about not having a family. But the time I've known him ever since, and when he became a follower of Jesus, I have never heard him complain a single time. 
I've never heard him blame his parents. He's chosen not to be a victim. And he relentlessly is curious about life and learning. He's collected many friends, and God has provided a kind of family for Joe here on earth. Joe is not a victim. He is a victor in Christ. He's often with us for our extended family gatherings, including just this past Christmas. And quite often we ask him if he'll say the prayer before the meal because we just love how Joe prays. And I invited him to come here today. He's very uncomfortable. He said, don't you go bragging about me. And I said, I'm going to brag about you because you're worth bragging about. And so I asked him if he would close in prayer. Would you welcome Joe? Hey, buddy. <laughs> Joe's a big hugger. Okay, would you please lead us out in prayer? Why don't you all stand? No, you're going to do it. You're going to do it. Why don't you all stand because we're going to sing a song after this. And uh, I never know what he's going to say, so here we go. But please, please pray, Joe. Dear Lord, Lord I want to thank you for warning Nancy. And um, thank you for um, bringing her daughter, Johanna, a new boyfriend. And um, thank you for their family and their generosity. And watch her with his daughter, Samantha, who's in Texas. And I pray for um, all the people at church today that you'd be with those who are going through a hard time and um, let them know that you love them and you care for them. And I pray for their unsaved relatives and um, people they work with at work and people in the neighborhood that you'd use the church to witness to the lost. And I pray that you'd help me to grow, to be more patient. I pray that you give the church humility and that you would um, bring the churches closer to you. Help, help us all to spend time in your word and to spend time with you to have some quiet time to tell you everything that um that's going on in our lives help us to trust you and to take one step at a time because we all grow differently and you know all about us because we're all your children you love us more than we love ourselves and i pray that you'd use us to um to uh, bring other people into your family in jesus name amen thank you joe